Welcome to the Negotiations Ninja Podcast, where we develop and deliver the most engaging negotiation content and training in the world. We host negotiation experts, business people, and entrepreneurs, and discuss what works, what doesn't work, and how we can improve our negotiation skills. Hello, Negotiations Ninja listeners. Welcome to this amazing episode with my great guest, Brian Gunia, the author of The Bartering Mindset. And in today, we talk all about thinking of yourself as both the buyer and the seller in the negotiation, thinking of a negotiation as walking around a market and identifying partners with compatible needs and offerings, and thinking of negotiating as making a set of mutually beneficial trades with a series of people. Really enjoyed this discussion with Brian. Enjoy. Hello, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here, man. We're going to have a fun time together talking all about bartering. But before we get into the conversation, tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do. So my name is Brian Gunia. I'm currently a professor and associate dean at Johns Hopkins in the Cary Business School. Been here for 11 years. I study basically how people can avoid the big mistakes that they might make in organizations, one of which might be negotiating ineffectively. Also study issues related to ethics and sleep as well and how those topics interconnect with one another. Prior to being at Johns Hopkins, I got my PhD from Northwestern. And before that, I was a consultant at a major consulting firm. So excited to to be here talking to you about my work and about negotiation. Fantastic. Yeah. Sleep and ethics sounds super interesting. Maybe we can get into that as a tangential conversation, but let's focus on negotiation. Let's focus on bartering. You have an amazing book, and I want to dwell on that for a second. It's called The Bartering Mindset. Folks, if you haven't picked it up, I highly recommend that you go pick it up. But in that book, you talk all about the topic of bartering. And I think what a lot of people think about when they think of negotiation, they think of bartering as sort of a metaphor for negotiation. Is that how you intended it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think actually when most people think of negotiation, they think of bargaining instead of bartering. And so the hardest thing I think is to kind of disassociate those two terms. Right. So I'm, I'm not talking about you know bargaining in the traditional sense. I'm talking about bartering in the sense of trading one thing for another. And, and so I, that's the way that I think about it is bartering. In addition to just being something that people do a lot of, especially during the pandemic, it's a good metaphor for negotiation. Well, let's maybe start there. Let's differentiate between bargaining and bartering. What is the difference between both of those things? Yeah. So bargaining actually is sort of what my book is recommending against. It's essentially the way that I would think about it is basically assuming that you want one thing and somebody else wants something else, and you have to either kind of arm wrestle them or fight them to get more of what you more than they do, or you have to find a way to reach a compromise in the middle. And so that's more akin to, to what I recommend against, which is bargaining or what I also call the monetary mindset, because that's also a relative kind of a monetary way of thinking about negotiations. Bartering is different. Bartering, the way that I think about it and the way that the literature thinks about it is trading one thing for another. And if you think about that, that's pretty hard to do, right? In order to trade one good or one service with somebody else, I have to need what they want and want what they have at the same time. That's called the double coincidence of wants. And I think that's really the most important feature of bartering is that, you know, that double coincidence of wants, it makes it quite difficult to reach an agreement over just one thing, right? So the way that I think about it, when people barter, they think a lot more creatively. They think of, about who else they can barter with. They bring up other issues that might make a trade possible. They think, you know, over the long term of trades that can, you know, balance the score in the long term. And so that's why I think bartering is such a great metaphor for negotiation because it kind of forces people out of that bargaining mindset and into 
more creative view of how people should negotiate. Something that you say is you said that bartering rose to prevalence quite a lot over the course of the pandemic. Why do you suppose that is? I actually have a paper on that where I looked at some of the underlying reasons. There's a lot of popular press and some academic work on that as well. I think there's different reasons. One is anytime an economy is struggling, bartering tends to increase. If you look over the course of history at economies that have have struggled or are in transition in some way, bartering goes up just because people have less money around, number one. Number two, they're maybe less confident in the currency and concerned about inflation. And so they more apt to want to deal in goods and services. There's other things as well. I mean, people just didn't necessarily have money if they had lost their job, right? So they had to find other sources of value for getting the things that they need. Bartering is tends to happen more often in families and in communities. And obviously, people were spending a lot of time with their family and in their community. And so I think that contributed to the prevalence, just not being able to find things as well, right? Like, you know, we were all short on toilet paper and shortbread, I mean, sourdough starter during the pandemic. So in order to get those, you might have had to look outside the store and into your own community. And like I said, it's, you know, bartering something that people do with their neighbors. And then the last reason that we identify for bartering increasing is that it's maybe more consistent with social distancing. People didn't necessarily want to go into a big store and and encounter a bunch of other people if they could just kind of sit at home and, you know, leave some sourdough starter on their neighbor's doorstep and the neighbor would come by with, you know, some toilet paper or something that was, that's a bit more consistent with quarantining and social distancing. That's almost exactly the situation that happened to my family. We ran out of toilet paper. We couldn't find any. We traded our neighbor eggs for toilet paper. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I fully resonate and relate with what you're saying. It's it was amazing how that supply chain challenge became such a big and not expecting it, right? Like how it became such a big problem. And I think we're seeing it more and more, and we will continue to see it more and more, especially with the supply chain challenges around consumer goods. Shelves are empty. You just cannot get certain things. And so being able to barter for that with your neighbors is really, really cool. In fact, there is a company called Barter Pay. I don't know if you're familiar with it. That No, I don't know that one. I've been to a couple of bartering clubs and observed those types of things, but I don't know Barter Pay specifically. So Barter Pay is like a platform for entrepreneurs, business owners, things like that, who may not necessarily be heavy on cash, but have things that they could trade for yeah. the things that they need. And so they've created this platform where you can go on there and start trading for things where you may not necessarily have cash, which is, I think, just brilliant. And I think it really is a good indication of sort of where we are in the bartering mindset. Now, what made you decide to want to write this book about bartering? Honestly, I think it arises from my difficulty in teaching students about how to negotiate effectively. I, I've been doing it for a long time, almost 15 years now, and struggle to describe you know, the right way to negotiate in a clear and concise and simple way that students can, you know, easily process. It's easy to process the bargaining idea that it's, you know, my way or your way and let's fight it out. That's easy, but it's harder to describe in a comprehensible and simple way to students, you know, what's a better way to negotiate? How do you pursue that win-win? How do you grow the pie? I mean, those are all kind of abstract metaphors. And so struggling with that for a bunch of years and asking a whole bunch of questions that I thought were interesting, but then I just decided we're not interesting ways to, to describe this. I eventually discovered in my mind, actually on a long drive one time, that bartering is actually a pretty good metaphor for the way that I try to teach people how to negotiate. I'm constantly encouraging my students to think about negotiations as a trade, right? So what do you really want? And what do they really want? And how can you put that into a trade? Well, there's a name for that. That's bartering. It's been around for time immemorial. And in fact, I think anthropologists and historians would say that it preceded money, right? So it's a really basic form of of economic transactions, but it's not something that we think about a lot within negotiation research and not something we talk a lot about in the academic community. So 
this came long before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic came around, you know, people actually started doing bartering more on a daily basis in the way that we've been talking about. And so I think it's also, you know, rising in popularity and in the public consciousness. Folks, we're going to take a short break from this podcast to tell you all about the negotiation training that we offer at Negotiations Ninja. If you're part of a sales team, if you're part of a procurement team, if you're part of a customer service team, really, if you're part of any customer or internal facing organization where communication sometimes fails, we probably have training that's going to help you. If you're trying to figure out how to deal with conflict better, if you're trying to figure out how to get more value out of your negotiations, if you're trying to figure out how to deal with price increases, give me a call. The easiest way to be able to do that is to go straight to our website at negotiations.ninja. That's negotiations.ninja. Or reach out to me directly on LinkedIn and let's set up a conversation. Would love to chat with you all about that. Let's get back to the show. think some of the biggest mistakes are when people start the bartering process? I think that they try to barter one thing for another is probably the biggest mistake, only coming to the table kind of with one thing with to trade. Thing. Yeah. Right. Because if you only have one, if you've only thought about and only have one thing in your back pocket to trade with somebody else, it's going to be hard to find another person who wants that exact thing and also has exactly what you want. People that are more successful kind of think about, well, here are the various things I have lying around or the various talents that I can have and I can bring you know, into the marketplace, if you want to put it that way. And if you're coming with prepared to offer the sourdough starter and the eggs and the toilet paper, and, you know, maybe you can help somebody polish the resume would be an example of the service. If they're applying for a job, you know, you're much more likely to find people that are willing to actually trade with you. Related weakness, I think, is, you know, people try to barter without thinking about what other people, whether anybody else might actually want what it is they're offering. I do an exercise in my classes sometimes where I have students come in and you know, bring things to barter with each other in the class. And some people do a really good job of this and they've thought really hard about what other students might want and been really strategic about it. Other times, you know, students bring in things that are, you know, they don't want and, and nobody else is going to want either based on the, the condition of the item or whatever it is. And they end up learning that you have to also, you know, take the other side's perspective and think about not only what do I have and what can I offer, but also what might anybody else want. And yeah. I think that's an important lesson of bartering is that you have to not just think about yourself, but think about your trading partners as well. Yeah, because maybe what you have is not necessarily what someone wants. And then you would walk into a trading situation with a value of goods, or at least a perceived value of goods or services that are worth nothing really to the counterparty because they don't need them, nor do they want them. And I think that that's a big issue in negotiation in general, where we're not necessarily thinking about what the counterparty in the negotiation could need or want. We often think pretty myopically about the deal itself. And we're not creative, I would say, a lot of the time. And I'm certainly guilty of this as well, where we're not thinking about additional things that we could pull in that may be valuable to the counterparty where we could say, what about this? Or what about that? And sometimes the flip of it is the reverse. I've heard many people say, including Joshua Weiss, I don't know if you know Josh Weiss, where he talks about, I can't remember in which book, but he talks about how one of the people that he studied was trying to buy another business. And that one CEO was talking to another CEO and the CEO who was trying to buy the other CEO's business said, hey, I want to buy your business for X amount of dollars. And the other CEO wasn't really interested. 
didn't really think of a certain way. And just before they walked out, they flipped it and they said, well, what if you bought my business? And thinking of it in the reverse is always very, very interesting as well. And I think that that creativity is lacking in a lot of business-to-business negotiations, not because the person isn't creative, but sometimes I feel like they're almost hamstrung by the confines of the agreement that have been set up. How do you feel about that? No, I think that's right. As people are very in business to business transactions in particular are very focused on the monetary terms, obviously, which is, I mean, that there's no way around the fact that the money is, is an important issue to negotiate. And I think you're right that one of the reasons is kind of boilerplate contracts and, you know, lots of, lots of lawyers in the room, you know, focusing your attention on the key terms. Also time pressure. I know in some of your other episodes of the podcast and, and I've heard some other people say that, you know, there's extreme time pressure that a lot of people are facing on the procurement side or, or other parts of the supply chain process. And so when you're facing a lot of time pressure and have deadlines and you're short staffed, you know, it's hard to be creative and talk about a whole bunch of issues because you're just under the gun. So the point that I try to make in the book is that you can't always apply the bartering mindset. There will be situations where it's just about one issue. There'll also be negotiations that aren't really important enough, right? I mean, let's just get the deal done and move on. But for the really important and consequential and, and meaningful negotiations, it pays to take the time to think about what else can be part of the deal, as you were describing. Also pays to take the time, if possible, to talk to other negotiation counterparts, right? I mean, we don't necessarily need to think about just negotiating with one person. Oftentimes, there's an alternative buyer or seller, depending on the nature of the transaction. You know, oftentimes, you know, it would pay to just go out and search a little bit and understand, are there other people out there, other firms out there that might be a better business partner over a longer period of time? Now, again, that only works when you have the time to do that and you have the resources to do that. So I recognize the real world imposes some constraints, but but again, the message is, you know, do this when it's important enough and the payout, the time spent will result in a better deal. You said something there that I find incredibly interesting. And I think a lot of people don't think of this when they're selling or buying something, regardless of what that thing is. They think within the confines of the goods and services with that particular trading partner, but they may not necessarily be thinking about other trading partners. Yeah. And so they think really with blinders on about, okay, I've got to work with this counterparty to make a deal work, but they may not necessarily be mapping out the full range of available partners and maybe what those other partners could bring to the negotiation as well. And even thinking about what if we brought multiple partners together? It Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be just me and you. It could be me and you and someone else, and maybe someone else has some influence over the situation. What benefits do you think that could provide? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, a basic fundamental piece of any negotiation is you should always be thinking about at least two negotiation counterparts, right? As yes. I'm sure you know, you should be thinking about who you're facing and then what your next best alternative would be. So that statement in and of itself is not revolutionary, but I would take it a lot farther than that along the lines of what you were saying, which is, you know, anytime we're negotiating something important, we shouldn't just be thinking about one person or even just or one you know counterpart or even just two counterparts. We should be thinking about, if we can, the whole marketplace of yes. counterparts that we could be dealing with. And I think you raise a great point that it's not just about you know surveying the market and figuring out which one is best. It's there's other configurations of deals that become possible, right? So like in this classroom exercise that I described, you can see that in a, on a really small scale because some of the students discover that they can do a circular trade. Person A trades with tr- person B. Person B trades with C and C trades back with A. And in that way, you know, everybody gets something that they want. It wouldn't have been possible if A and B were just trading with each other at the same time. And so I, you know, I think there's an opportunity for trades to become possible that weren't possible. There's certainly an opportunity for for value to be created there because inherently, you know, you might just be talking to somebody who doesn't really need what you have. But if you brought that third party into the equation, they might have a very different view of 
your money or your resources or your business or whatever it is that you're offering at the time. So I would always encourage people when they're negotiating something important to take the time and think beyond you know the one issue of money, but also think beyond the one counterpart who most naturally appears at the table. Yeah. I like something that you said there of the perception of value of whatever it is that you're trading, because oftentimes I feel like we get stuck in this mindset of, this is what I'm selling. And I think I know why you think that thing is valuable, but you may value it for a completely different reason. And so we get, for example, I've seen business deals where you know I'd be selling a business to you. And in my head, I'm thinking about the traditional valuation model of, you know, this is worth X times earnings, whatever that thing is. But to the counterparty, that business is worth 10x, 20x, 30x, whatever the earnings are, because it provides them with a competitive advantage that their competitors don't have. And if you can tap into why that thing is valuable for that counterparty, not necessarily that it is valuable, but why it's valuable, then that creates significantly more leverage for you in that bartering situation so that you can have multiple potential transactions that could occur with multiple trading partners. And now you can decide which one is going to be most valuable for me and what is going to create the most value in the marketplace as a result. Yeah, absolutely. You know. You have to, as a negotiator, think about what the other side might value. But the point you're making, I agree with, is you know you you can't assume you know too much about what drives the other party's value, right? I mean, there's something that you think that isn't really valuable to you might be incredibly valuable to counterpart A or B. I observed this in the in the bartering exercise one time in class. I had a I was doing this on kind of a consulting basis for an organization, doing a bartering training, and one of the participants in the organization was the past president of the organization who is well known by throughout the organization and then there were a lot of kind of junior level staffers there as well and the president of the organization came with her signature to barter basically an autograph to barter and i'm sure to her you know that is not very valuable but to everybody else on the zoom call we were doing this virtually everybody else was bartering for her signature and they were willing to put you know team up and put multiple things together to get her signature and share it and i mean it's so that's just one example but this is the essence of bartering and it's the essence of negotiation that in order for a deal to happen, somebody else has to value what you have more than you do and vice versa, right? So I think we should be careful about it, making too many assumptions about how much value are attached to whatever we're offering and just listen to our counterparts and how they're reacting and what they're saying about what's valuable to them. Yeah, agreed. Now, what I love about your book is that you sort of bookend the book with objections to the bartering mindset, which I think is super intelligent. So tell me about what some of the objections to this idea are. Yeah, I, mean, I can't take credit for that idea. I, I got that straight from Getting to Yes, which also the first edition at least ends with objections. So I borrowed the idea from them. But I think a variety of, of objections come up. One is that we can't get away from money. All negotiations have money, which you know is true, certainly. But my response to that is, yes, that's true. But why not treat money as one of the things you're bartering? I mean, there's no reason to think about money as money and no reason to think about money as the only issue involved, right? I mean, this can just be, if you're on the buyer side, money is one of the things you're providing to the other side along with everything else. Another objection would be that you know sometimes we can't engage with multiple partners. We've just got one job offer, for example. So how are we supposed to talk to anybody else about it? Which I say, well, that, I mean, even if you only have one job offer, there's multiple people in that organization, right? You should be talking to your future boss in addition to the HR representative and asking them you know, what's important to them. You should be talking to your future coworkers and trying to understand the lay of the land a little bit better. You should certainly at the same time, you know, be trying if you can to get another job offer. I mean, not always possible again, but you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying if only as a fallback option. You should be, 
you know, thinking about lots of different issues that could come into play. It's not just about the salary. It's about, you know, the bonus and when are you going to be evaluated and how often will you come into the office and how much travel. And so, you know, I just would encourage people always to think more broadly than the one counterpart and the one issue. I guess the other, one other objection would be, you know, this bartering mindset is kind of a win-win cooperative creative view of negotiation. Isn't there a competitive side as well? And so my response to that is, yes, I, I'm not naive about this. I don't mean to downplay that you know, negotiation has both this cooperative side and this competitive side. The point I'm trying to make in the book is only that, if possible, the cooperative side should come first, right? You should understand the marketplace, who's out there, who you're interacting with, what's important to them, and what do they value that you might have. That cooperative piece should come before the competitive piece, because only when you're talking to the right people about the right issues at the right time, only then are you really in a position to claim value and be competitive. A key mistake I think that people make is they jump right to this one counterpart, this one issue, and let me slam my fist on the table and see how much I can extract from the other side. That's short-sighted because it's not clear that you're talking to the right person about the right issues and you're only focusing on one issue, which is inherently going to be competitive. It could be a lot more cooperative if you were bringing in other issues of value. Yeah, well said. I'm sure that people are going to pick up the book after this, but they're probably going to want to connect with you as well. Are you on LinkedIn? Yes, I am on LinkedIn. So that's a good way to connect Facebook and other Twitter and other places as well. Fantastic. And listen, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Love the book. Love what you're doing. Really, really, really good conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. It was my pleasure. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with friends and colleagues so that they can benefit from it as well. If you find Negotiations Ninja podcast worthy, please go on to iTunes and give us a cool rating with a nice review. We certainly appreciate every single one that we get because it helps us to understand who is listening, how they're listening, and what it is they like. If there's something that you would like me to discuss around negotiation, influence, or persuasion, give me a shout. You know how to reach me on social media, or you can get me on my website, which is www.negotiations.ninja. 